see that? It looks like Pastor Steve is doing children's church today. All right. Hey, church, have you ever felt awkward? Have you ever felt awkward in church? I have. I have. I mean, if you have any kind of sense of the people around you, if you have any kind of ability to read a room, there are times where you feel awkward. And there are times where, because you are not perfect, there are times where you feel embarrassed. And here's what I want to talk with you about today as we get into this second sermon on what it means to be the church together. Here's what I want to talk with you about, and this is going to come up over and over and over in this sermon. There are things that happen in our lives, but I'm thinking especially about the church. There are things that happen that feel awkward. Embrace it. Some of you, because of the way that you are wired, because of your personality and your history, you're saying, that's awesome. I'm in. Awkwardness doesn't bother me, baby. There are others of you, because of the way you're wired, because of your experience, and because of your history, awkwardness is a bit more of a problem, and this is going to be difficult, but I want to challenge all of us today. I want to challenge all of us today to embrace the awkward. Why? Because I think love can cast out awkwardness if we practice it right. That's where we're going today, and that's what we're talking about. Now, this is a challenge because a lot of times when we start to think about these things, we start to think about what it's like to be in a crowd, what it's like to be in a group. Sometimes we get wrapped up in the way that the world acts. It was really interesting to me. Did any of you, I, I, got, I don't very often um, read an actual newspaper, but this week, uh, yesterday, I was at a gas station, and I saw uh, the Sunday copy of the Daily Local paper, and I just picked one up because it had an interesting Interesting headline on the top of it. It talked about the Coatesville School District canceling their football game on Friday night. And the reason why they did that, this is homecoming weekend in Coatesville, but they got on either on Thursday or Friday, they got what the paper described as a credible threat. Meaning that somebody made some kind of a threat that something bad was going to happen at the football game in Coatesville on Friday night. So initially the plan was they were going to play, there's a high school football game, how many miles from here? Within a pretty easy drive. This is a high school football game. Their, their first strategy was, we're just going to play the football game with no spectators. Nobody in the stadium. That's what they were planning to do on Friday afternoon. But then they got some more, and, and the paper didn't go into all the details. But what it says is there were more threats, and they got to the point where they canceled the football game on Friday night. Why? Because some kind of a threat, as the school district talked with local law enforcement, they decided it was not safe to have everybody together all in that place. Now, that's awkward, right? That's difficult. That's a crowd setting where people said, hey, there might be some really bad things happen here. In fact, there is a credible threat out there that bad things are going to happen. Let's not get the crowd together. And sometimes we can get swept up in that. Those of us who live here in 2022, we know some of the things that happen, the bad things that happen out there, and we know indeed that bad things have happened in church, but the church is supposed to be a place that is living differently from the world. Jesus said we're supposed to live in love, and so while there may be things that happen to us from the outside, we should be a place here where we can practice love for each other. And in that kind of an environment, with all of us here being brothers and sisters turning to Jesus together, that should be able to wipe away a lot of the awkwardness and a lot of the embarrassment and a lot of the fear that often comes with living in the world. What does it mean to be the church? It means that we live in love. And that means that our groups look differently than the groups that gather around us. 
Real quickly, I want to roll through the passage that Anthony read for devotions this morning. It comes out of 1 John. And I just want to make sure that we can unpack this because there's a lot of talk here about love and what it looks like and what it means. And so we're going to first run through 1 John, and then we're going to get to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. So Anthony read this morning from 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7. This is John writing to the church at large. He says, Dear friends... This is a message to believers, people who follow Jesus Christ as their Savior. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8 says, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In other words, if you are plugged into the Lord, if you are a child of the Lord, if you are saved by Jesus Christ, love should be one of your markers. This is what God is. Verse 9 tells us that God showed his love among us this way. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Do you see what love does in this case? Love sends. Love engages. Love reaches out, even though the world to which the Lord sent his son was a dark, dirty, and wicked place. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atoning, a bit of a theological term there, that can be difficult for some of us. But um, the word atone, A-T-O-N-E, if you split it up, at one, because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we can be at one with our father. God sent Jesus so that we don't have to be separate from God anymore. We can be at one with him. Jesus paid the price for our sins. Sin no longer comes between us and God, but we are at one with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. What else does this mean? Look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, since God did that for us, sent his son engaged with us and allowed us to be at one with him, we also ought to love one another. Now this is basic kindergarten Sunday school stuff, right? God loved us, so we should love each other. But grown-ups, how are we doing? Even here in this fellowship, I know we don't all know each other. We've gotten to be a larger group. We don't all rub shoulders as often as we used to because there's, frankly, just a whole lot of other shoulders here. But shouldn't this be the kind of place where we can all love one another and be at ease? I know that takes some time, and I know many of us have things that we need to heal from to get there, but this is the model that God is showing us. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. And I believe there's one more verse that Anthony read. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. No one's ever seen God, but if we live in love, we we can see the signs of God around us. Last week, we shared communion together. Many of us washed each other's feet. We were following the example of Jesus that he put out in the Gospel of John. We, we read about this event that happened about 2,000 years ago. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. There they were in an upper room. Jesus took off his garment, and, and because no one was there to wash their feet, they had been out on a dusty road. They were getting ready to sit down for supper. Jesus took off his outer robe, and, and he put a towel around his waist, and he washed the feet of his disciples. They said, oh, Jesus, you shouldn't be washing our feet. You're, you're the greatest. You're our teacher. You are our rabbi. We should be washing yours. He says, no, I'm doing this for you. And then in John 13, verse 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. 
love one another. As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. And then in John 13, 35, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. First John tells us that a mark of God is that we ought to love each other. The gospel of John, Jesus directly spoke to his disciples and the words ring out to us today. If we are going to say that we follow the Lord, we must love each other. Remember that old song? Maybe you sang it as children. Maybe you sang it as adults. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. How many, how many people know that you are a Christian because of the way that you love? How many people in your life? Because, listen, it gets really easy to start looking around and say, well, how is that person loving? And I remember when that guy wasn't very loving to me. And, and what are you doing about love? And, and how about you? Right? We, we can start to think about this love thing in terms of others and what they're doing really quickly. But how about you, church? Do people know that you are a Christian because of your love? That's a big challenge. But they will know that we are Christians by our love. We will, they will know that we are disciples if we love one another. And if the love of God is not seen through us, God is not in us because God is love. This is how 1 John and the Gospel of John set up this whole love thing, and this is our call. Jesus called us to follow his example. At that last supper, after he washed their feet, it says in John 13, 1, that Jesus was showing the full extent of his love. And it was interesting, I heard a preacher this week, it was fun how, how his sermon kind of aligned with what I was with what I was thinking about, he was talking about reconciliation, and lo and behold, that's where I was headed as well. And what that preacher lifted out is he said, one of the amazing things about God is he didn't just say, well, I'm here. Talk to me if you need me. One of the most incredible things about God is that God offered himself and God engaged and God initiated to be close to us. Colossians 2 says that when we were dead in our sins and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Christ has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We are forgiven, not by any act of our own, but because of the act and the initiation of God. And when Jesus was washing his feet, his crucifixion hadn't happened yet. It was just days away. But he knew what he was working toward. And so he washed his disciples' feet and said, I want you guys to do this. He said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And Jesus was really serious about forgiveness when he told his followers in Matthew 6.15 that if you don't forgive each other, if you don't forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness is essential, and this is part of how we act out our love. If you're keeping notes on the back of your bulletin, one thing you can put down, number one, to love means to forgive. God loved us. God forgives us through the work of Jesus Christ. God forgives us. And God has forgiven us if we've asked him. Forgiveness is essential. You cannot be a Christian without forgiveness. But forgiveness is not the end of the story. What we can see in the work of Jesus Christ and in the historical work of God is that God works not just for us to be forgiven, but God works to be reconciled to us. Let me give you an example, perhaps, from a real life. There is somebody who treated you bad, somebody who treated you really bad. 
somebody stole from you, somebody hurt you, somebody attacked you, and they shouldn't have done it. It was wrong, and in fact, it was so wrong that, that they were arrested and they were thrown in jail, and, and there they sit. You have no access to this person. They are far, far away. It's hard to be reconciled because you have no connection. But you can still forgive them. Forgiving them is you deciding that you are not going to let what they did ruin your heart. You are not going to let what they did sour you on all relationships forever. God calls us to forgive. But are you reconciled? No, they're still sitting far away. They're still paying a consequence for what they did. You may not have access to them. You may not be able to speak to them. Some of you have been wronged by people who are now dead. You can't reconcile to them anymore, but you can forgive them. The scripture tells us that forgiveness is, is laying down the right to be offended. I'm not holding on to this anymore. I'm laying it down. You can forgive them. That's what God has done for us. That's part one. But what Jesus is really working for and what we keep seeing in his life is that forgiveness is just step one. Step two is that Jesus is working for reconciliation. Do you remember how he treated these disciples? He pursued them. He engaged them. He didn't just say, well, you're forgiven. Good luck. He said, you're forgiven. Now I'm going to serve you. You're forgiven. I'm going to continue to give you examples. Jesus took the initiative. He embraced the awkwardness. You remember, as Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, there were still 12 disciples in that room. Judas was in that room, and Jesus washed his feet. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him in just a few hours. And yet Jesus embraced that strangeness. I mean, if you knew that somebody was going to hurt you after church today, would it be easy to be loving to them right now? But Jesus embraced it and he pursued Judas and he washed his feet anyway. Jesus washed the feet of Peter, who in just a few hours was going to deny that he even knew Jesus. Three times he would do this. And yet Jesus engaged, Jesus pursued he loved, he served, and he forgave in such a way that there didn't have to be any obstacles between Jesus and them. Jesus did everything that needed to be done so that there could be a relationship. But here's a note, and here's something we need to get, we need to get straight, because some of you have already got this objection in your mind. Despite our greatest efforts, church, Reconciliation doesn't always work. Reconciliation doesn't always work. We can't look at this as a tool that's going to fix everything. We look at this as a model for how we're supposed to live. We can forgive as if it's a one-way street. I can forgive Kerwin if, if he wronged me and said something mean to me. I can forgive him even if he never asks me to forgive him. Even if he doesn't know that he offended me. I can say, Kerwin, I forgive you, or, or maybe I wouldn't even say that. Maybe it's going to stir up too much if I'd say, I forgive you for that thing. Maybe I just, God, I forgive Kerwin, and I can let him go. He may not even know. Forgiveness can work that way. And there are some of you who need to forgive people from whom you're never going to get a response. Forgiveness can be a one-way street. But it takes two people to reconcile. Sometimes our brother or sister doesn't respond. Sometimes Kerwin hurts me really bad, and, and, and I say, Kerwin, I, I forgive you. And he says, what are you talking about? I don't need to be forgiven. What I said was true. What I said was right. You are a jerk. 
And I say, well, Kerwin, I forgive you. They say, I don't, I don't even need that forgiveness. And then there's that thing between us. And, and for me, I've done all that I can do to, to, try to try to make things right. And Kerwin says, no, I, I don't need that. Well, I can't make him do anything. I can't make us be in a right relationship. What can I do? I can forgive him. I can take away my offense. And I can leave the doors open. But reconciliation doesn't always work. There are some people who have hurt you, as I've said, who are no longer living. And you can't be reconciled with them. And there is great pain in that. But what does the Bible challenge us to do over and over again? What does the example of Jesus challenge us to do over and over and over again? It challenges us to continue to engage and to get everything out of the way, all the bad stuff out of the way as best we can. You know, after Peter made his terrible mistake of denying Jesus three times, Peter repented and came back to Jesus. In fact, a few letters that he wrote are now included in our scripture. They're called First and Second Peter. Peter was able to be restored. Jesus forgave him, and there was a reconciliation there. But the case with Judas was a little bit different. After Judas, one of Jesus' disciples who'd followed him for three years, followed him closely, in fact, seems to have been the treasurer of the group. He was that trusted. After Judas made his terrible mistake of selling out Jesus and betraying him with a kiss, Judas did not repent and reconcile with Jesus. Now, it seems as if Jesus, being Jesus, could have just zapped Judas and changed him right around, but he didn't. He gave Judas freedom. What did Judas do with his freedom? He didn't repent. He didn't come back. Matthew 27 tells us that Judas, after he had betrayed Jesus and after he realized that Jesus was going to be hung on a cross and killed, it says Judas was seized with remorse and he gave back the 30 pieces of silver that he had received to sell out Jesus in the first place. It says in Matthew 27 verse 4, Judas said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. But Judas, instead of coming back to Jesus, instead of being reconciled, instead of enjoying the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and instead of being able to be brought back into full fellowship, it says in Matthew 27, verse 5, that Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away, and he hanged himself. He was not willing to deal with the awkwardness that came out of all of his betrayal. Peter terribly awkward. Oh, Jesus, I betrayed you three times. I'm so sorry. And Jesus said, I forgive you. And they were restored. Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, wasn't willing to face all that. And there was no restoration. Restoration takes two people. Judas was not willing to respond. And there are people in your life, even though you will forgive them, and even though you're trying to leave the door open, parents of grown children, am I talking to any of you? And the door, please come back. We'll, we'll have, we'd love to have you back, but they don't want to be reconciled. They've got their own mind, their freedom, and they've got their own choices to make. Reconciliation is difficult. It doesn't always work because it relies on two people, and you can't control anybody else. You try to control them, it's going to get worse and worse. Am I right? But what does God do over and over? What did Jesus do over and over? He continued to pursue even in the midst of the awkwardness, in the midst of the pain, and in the midst of the challenge, Jesus pursued. If somebody else is not willing to respond, that's on them. But it's no excuse for us not to be the bigger man or the bigger woman who simply acts the way that Jesus told us all to act. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is, is this making sense? 
Jesus says, I'm your Lord and your teacher. I've washed your feet. Now I want you to wash each other's feet. I've set you an example. You should do as I have done for you. So, so now church, let's get really practical. How do we do this? How do we follow Jesus' example? Because I know there are some of you that sitting there right now saying, I've tried. I've tried to be forgiving. I don't know how. I've tried to reconcile. It hasn't worked. What do we do? How do we do this? Well, there, there are a couple of practical things that the scripture tells us. First of all, as it relates to forgiveness, step one. And second of all, as it, works to re- as it relates to reconciliation, which is step two. First of all, I've talked a little bit about forgiveness. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Whether a person asks for it or not, we are to lay down our right to be offended. Some people, as I said, they don't know that they offended us. They said something just off the cuff. They don't even remember that they said it, but we have remembered it and chewed on it for years. Let it go. You can forgive without that person coming back to you and saying, oh, I'm so sorry. You can still forgive them because forgiveness is a decision that you make. Forgiveness is not a feeling. I had a person one time and they said some things to me and they said some things about me that really hurt and that I interpreted as an attack. Was it an attack? I'll never really know. But it felt like it and it cut me deep. And this was years ago, but I can't tell you how many times I've thought about it again. I forgave that person soon after it happened because I knew, I knew that if I just kept chewing on this and stewing on this like I had been, it was going to give me an ulcer, it was going to keep me up at night, and it was going to steal all my joy every time I walked into the room with that person. I'd be looking, are they here? You've done this, haven't you? Are they here? Maybe I'll walk this way. Maybe maybe this isn't the day for me to be in this spot. You know what it's like to be enslaved by our thoughts about other people like that? I knew that that's what could happen because I had been trained as a pastor. I'm teaching people to be forgiving. And so I practiced that, and, and I didn't feel it. I was still mad at this guy. I still felt hurt by this guy. And there were times where his comments came back, and I, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Well, was that true? Am I that? Is it going to be that way? But here's what I did, church, and you can do this too. Many of you have done this. I I simply said, even though I was not in a position to speak to him face-to-face anymore and and things were kind of some water under the bridge there, in my prayers, I said, Lord, I choose to forgive him. Lord, I choose to forgive him. I don't feel it, and frankly, I don't really want to. I kind of want to be mad. But Lord, I know that's not good for me. And I know, Lord, that you have commanded, not, not requested. God doesn't ask us to forgive people. God says, you must forgive. What does the scripture say? You have been forgiven. If you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter six. I want to be forgiven. And so I said, Lord, I forgive this brother. It took a couple years for my feelings to catch up to my statement. There were times, and I know I've mentioned it before, there, there were times, for whatever reason, when I mowed a certain part of my yard, I would think of that guy almost every time. I don't know, I guess maybe one of the first times that I was really chewing it over, I must have been, must have been pushing my push mower right there. And, and for years, every time I mowed that spot of my grass, I would pray again and I would say, God, I forgive that person. I'm letting this go. Even if the feelings came back, no, God, I'm deciding and I'm letting this go. And I can tell you now, 10, 12, 15, 20 years later, I can tell you that once in a while it still comes back, and what do I do? God, I forgive. I choose to forgive. And I feel much better 
about all of that. I can see God's justice working out in my life. But that's hard stuff. So many of you know what I'm talking about. What is step one? We forgive. We decide. We don't feel. We decide to forgive. Our feelings will catch up with our decisions. That's how we follow the example of Jesus Christ. We forgive. We decide it and we say it to God. God, I forgive him. God, I want you to know I forgive him. And sometimes we may need to say it to some trusted brothers and sisters around us. You know, that person really hurt me. I've been struggling with it. Please pray for me, but I want you to know I have forgiven Kerwin. No matter what you see, or what I've, and if you see me slipping or getting bitter again, remind me that I've, right, this is the kind of way that we work this out. Poor Kerwin. I'm just, I'm picking on him over here. And just a moment ago, the sun started shining through the blinds and it's right in his face. And, and, and that happened, that happened after. So the light of God is upon you. <laughs> Even as I pick on you for something you never did. We have to forgive. We have to, we are commanded, church, to forgive. I've heard people say before, well, I hold a grudge, as if they're proud of it. That's sin. You hold a grudge. Let me tell you, you hold a grudge. That's not cute. That's, that's not a godly culture. That is sin. Scripture tells us we must forgive. I'm not suggesting it's easy or fun. I'm not suggesting it's going to make your life go better. I'm telling you, this is God's call for us. We must forgive. And secondly, we must do our part. We must do our part to be reconciled. I told you, we can't control the other person. But we must do our part to be reconciled. Matthew chapter 18 gives some really great instruction on this if someone has sinned against us. Right? In Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15, Jesus tells the, the, the believers directly, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. You don't bring along your friend. You don't bring along a gang so that they can be convinced. First step, step one, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is very clear. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Write it down. Study it if you need to. You'll see that this is not, this is not unclear teaching. This is clear teaching from Jesus. Your brother or sister sins, go and point it out just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. It's done. But verse 16, Jesus knew that not everybody responds that way all the time. If they will not listen, then take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, after you've talked to them one-on-one, -on -one, after you've talked to them one-on-one, -on -one, after you've done what? After you've talked to them, after you've forgiven, and after you've talked to them one-on-one. -on -one. See, we all skip this one. We want to bring somebody along first because we're cowards. I am and you are. We don't like doing it. It's awkward. Even if they're clearly wrong, it's awkward. It's difficult. It's hard. But this is the teaching of Jesus. There's a quote from G.K. Chesterton. He was, a, he was a writer, a philosopher, a thinker, and, and a Christian in England about 100 years ago. And here's what he said. G.K. Chesterton said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. The Christian ideal has been found difficult and left untried. I'm going to say that again because that is, that is gold out of the pages of history. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. G.K. Chesterton, 
You look him up online and, and just search for G.K. Chesterton, and even if you don't find that quote, you'll find a whole bunch of good stuff that you can read. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, it's over. Nobody else needs to know. But if they will not listen, take one or two, not 15, not 80, not your whole clan. Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, we're going to make sure that this story is straight, just in case they are a rebel. But if, if they listen, well, Scripture says it the other way. Jesus in Matthew 18, 17, if they still refuse to listen, because you're not going just to yell at them. You're not going just to accuse them. You're not going to put them in their place. You're going to let them know that you have forgiven them. And you're going to let them know that there doesn't have to be an obstacle between you and them. You're going to offer life with them. You're going to offer reconciliation. But if they refuse to listen, Matthew 18, 17, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And here's how the church treats pagans and tax collectors, just so that we don't get out of line. Pagans and tax collectors are not immediately sent to the brig. Pagans and tax collectors are not immediately executed. Pagans and tax collectors are not immediately told that they're no good and God will never love them. That is not how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors. Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors, and the church should too, by praying for them, by forgiving them, and by welcoming them back if they repent. Some of us said, oh, pagan or tax collector, they're out of my life forever. No, that's not scriptural. That's just grandma talking to you. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Perhaps you can be reconciled if they respond well. If they don't, take one or two others along with you. Trusted brothers and sisters, perhaps you can be re reconciled if they respond well. But if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Let the get, not for gossip. Gossip needs to be squashed all the time. But tell it to the church, because if this brother or if this sister is out of line, the church should know it. And if they continue to refuse to see the light, even after you've spoken to them, and even after one or two witnesses have come along and said, okay, we can see what's going on here. This needs to be dealt with. If that brother or sister then says, no, I won't do it. Well, then treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. It means you are not part of this fellowship right now. You need to straighten yourself out. You need to hear from God. And when you repent, we will welcome you back. Just like Jesus welcomed so many pagans and tax collectors. Engage with people. Forgive them and fight the awkwardness. Remove every possible obstacle between you and the other believers. Press in. This is what Jesus did, and Jesus explicitly and directly told us to do the same thing over and over and over in Scripture, but especially in John chapter 13 and in 1 John chapter 4. Heavy stuff. Take a breath. Take another breath and take another breath. I'm going to give you a moment and I'm going to invite you to sit quietly and think about a person who may need your forgiveness. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't know it, but, but you know it. There is, there is probably somebody in your life against whom you are holding some kind of a grudge, you're holding some bad feelings, you're holding some hurt, you're holding some pain. God calls us to forgive. And church, I'm going to give you a moment. If you'd, like to, if you'd like to speak to God right now and just declare to God that you forgive them, I'm going to give you a moment to do that. And the Spirit's moving me right now. I hadn't thought of this before, but I'm going to be a little bit bold if there's anybody in this room 
that needs your forgiveness. This would be an okay time for you to fight the awkwardness and maybe walk over to them. And, and if they've asked you for forgiveness or if you've asked them for forgiveness and it hasn't happened yet, maybe this is the time to say, I finally forgive you. Or brother or sister, would you please forgive me? I'm going to take a moment and I'm just going to bow my head and pray. And I'm going to let you talk to God however you need to. And if you need to talk to a brother or sister here asking for forgiveness or granting forgiveness that's been requested of you but that you've held back on, you can go ahead and have that conversation too, quietly and privately. Let's just come before the Lord. Lord God, we forgive. Thank you, God, for forgiving us. We forgive the people who have hurt us. Church, I'm going to encourage you to take this posture for the rest of your lives. Don't stop when I start talking again. But for the rest of your lives, I hope that you will be willing to forgive those people who need your forgiveness, and I pray that you will be willing to ask forgiveness of those whom you've wronged forever, because this is what it means to love. This is what it means to be a fellowship. Amen? Amen. I've got a little bit of time left. I'm going to use it. I'm going to give you a quick announcement, then I'm going to show you a movie. Sound good? Here's a quick announcement little commercial for you as we come back in, as we take a deep breath. On Friday, November 4th, Saturday, November 5th, it's the week before the Lighthouse Auction, if that helps you to orient yourself on the calendar. Friday, November 4th, Saturday, November 5th is a special weekend for AMEC, A-M-E-C. That stands for the Alliance of Mennonite Evangelical Congregations. AMEC is the local church network that we belong to here at Waterway, along with some of our neighbors like Mount Vernon, in Kirkwood, Andrews Bridge Christian Fellowship, and Sandy Hill Church in Coatesville. I've had the privilege of serving on the executive board for the last number of years. I currently serve as the president of the AMEC board. Now, AMEC is holding a two-day conference at Bethany Grace Fellowship. It's in East Earl, just a couple miles above Shady Maple Smorgasbord. How many of you know where that is? Yeah, you can find it. On November 4th and November 5th, we're having a conference, and Josh McDowell is the featured speaker. Josh McDowell, the Josh McDowell, he's, a, he's a, an older gentleman by this time, but he has been ministering for decades, written a number of books. Perhaps you're like us, and you have one of his devotional books in your house. But Josh McDowell is going to be the, is going to be the speaker on November 4th and November 5th, and his topic is speaking truth in a whatever culture, okay? Everybody's invited, all of you. Okay, on Saturday, there's a free lunch and there's a free supper and there is free childcare all day. No excuses. Come and hear what Josh has to say and visit with other Christians in the area. I think this can be a fantastic time. A lot of times, you know, we pastors in AMEC have a chance to get together. We work together a lot and we help each other out. But a lot of times our congregations just don't run into each other that much. So November 4th and November 5th, there's information on the AMEC website, www amec.church, not .net or .com or .org, amec.church. Check that out. Now, the strength of this AMEC network that we're a part of, we have neat conferences from time to time, and I'm really excited to hear what Josh McDowell has to tell us. 
But the strength of the network is that the pastors in that network help us, and Steve and I help them. For example, on Thursday, I was at the West Union Mennonite Church, which is in Rexville, New York. It's just over the Pennsylvania and New York line, kind of out in the, in the middle part of the state. And uh, I went up with Jonathan Yoder, who is the executive director of AMEC. And we were helping out with an interview process. That church is searching for a pastor. They, they, they found a, a person that seemed interesting. So we went to help out with a second interview, which is one of the things that AMEC does. And so we were supposed to be there on Thursday for a five o'clock supper, but travel went really well. The rain had finally stopped on Thursday afternoon. And we got up there at four o'clock. It was a day that looked a lot like today. Beautiful, clear skies, crisp and cool outside. And so we had an hour to kill. So nobody was at the church yet. So we drove down a couple of the back roads to soak up some of the neighborhood. On the way back to the church, we were within sight of the church a quarter mile away. We ran into this. Delmar's going to show you a picture on the screen. Yes, it's a dirt road. This is in, uh, I believe it's Potter County. I'm not 100% sure. I get my counties mixed up up in that part of the world. But this is a dirt road and the hill is about as steep as it looks. Um, what you see here in the front uh, on the left of the picture is a red truck. I don't know what kind of truck it is, but it's a big truck. It's a loud truck. It's got big tires, construction tires, and it's got a big, huge block of weight on the back. I don't know what kind of thing it is, but it's not the type of thing you normally see trucking through Oxford. But on the back, the yellow thing, just in case you can't see very clearly, the yellow thing, that is a Lieber 1220 crane. And I know this because, of course, I'm a crane expert. It also happens to be painted on the side. It's a Lieber 1220 crane. The crane itself, which is there on that trailer, stuck going up the hill, the crane itself weighs 99 tons. That crane can lift 250 tons, 197 feet up in the air. It has like five or six cylinders that keep extending. And what they use it for, that, that crane is used to build the cranes that put up the huge windmill wind turbines that are starting to dot that part of the country to generate electric. So that's the crane that builds the crane that makes the wind turbines. The trailer that the crane was riding on had 12 axles and it was stuck. There was a fellow named Cody there. Cody was from Houston, Texas. I got to talk to him because I don't feel awkward talking to other people. I got out. I had my camera just like another local fellow who you may see in a moment. We got out. We're, we're looking at this. There would have been more people looking, except it was a little back road in Potter County. We're watching. The truck tried a couple times to start. It couldn't. Had plenty of power. Just couldn't get any traction. So we were asking Cody what was going on. And Cody said, well, he just needs a little bit of help. And this is what help looked like. Delmar's going to show you a little video. There's no sound to it. Don't, don't worry. But uh, this is a professional videographer. I know it's pretty good. Um, but here, as I stood clearly out of the way, help came in the form of a John Deere payloader. And because it's a crane company, they had lots of straps. And there you see Cody walking back in his coveralls. He's there at the red truck, and, and he's telling them how they're going to do it. And the payloader started pulling he came and gave his friend some help. The truck was still fully engaged, still fully pulling, and the payloader, you could see it digging down. It was going up this gravel road, which looks a little bit level now because the photographer was really good. But here's, here's one of our neighbors that was there watching as well. And he was pulling him up the hill. Right now he's about 20% of the way up the hill. It's a long hill up through the woods. And they're going and they're going. And the photographer's saying, if something breaks, where am I going to run to? And they were going and going, 
and the loader was helping the truck, and they were crawling up the hill. A friend came to help a friend, and they were getting it done. No awkwardness. We're just going to deal with it. We just need some help. And they got the work done, and everything was going really, really well until it wasn't. (laughs) Everything started to bog down. Things shook a little bit. The back tires of the loader, even though they were going so slow, you can see the guy walking on the side. You know this isn't sped up or slowed down. The the loader, even though they were crawling and carrying this 99-ton crane, and how heavy is that truck and trailer? They were pulling and pulling until, how often do you see tires on a loader like that spin? And then because of all the torque and all the power, it actually, it actually turned a little bit, and they said, shut her down. It was pretty fascinating to watch that. This all happened in like five minutes when I'm waiting for a church meeting. <laughs> you know what Cody said? Cody from Houston, Texas. Cody who said, you know, if, if I'd have been here when they did the scouting run back in the spring, I'd have had two trucks, because oftentimes we'll take two trucks, even going down the road just to have enough power. But they thought because they were coming downhill and then getting ready to go uphill, they'd be fine, but they didn't realize there was a low power line at the bottom, so they had to stop at the bottom of this dirt hill, lift the power line, go under it, and then they had no speed to get back up. They got stuck. Cody says he just needs a little help. We put the loader on the front, strap him up, and they go a little bit further. (laughs) They got to the point where the payloader can no longer pull 99 tons up the hill. What did Cody say? Oh, he just needs a little bit more help. This, this fellow knew how to deal with yokels taking pictures. Just really casually, they got stuck. He said, well, we just need more help. We're going to call the guys on the up of the hill, at the top of the hill, and they'll bring down a bulldozer or a, or, or a grader or, or maybe a dump truck, and we'll just strap them in the front yet. And if that doesn't work, we'll get another one. No big deal. And, and you know, it, it, was, it was so amazing watching all this. And, and, you know, of course, I'm thinking about sermons all week long. I thought, oh, Cody, you just gave me a perfect illustration. You know, you need help. Sometimes you do dumb things. You didn't plan it out right. You got stuck at the bottom of the hill. You tried. Now you got stuck uphill and you can't go back down. Well, you just need some help. I, I mean, why get embarrassed? Why feel awkward? You just need some help. And, and maybe you've gotten yourself in such a jam that that other person can't help you. Okay, well, you just need some help. That's why, that's why we're all here, isn't it? To help each other, and to give a hand. I mean, you, sometimes you just need some help. Jesus came to this world so that all the obstacles between us and God could be wiped away. And Jesus challenged us. In fact, he commanded us and said, you need to forgive each other and you need to reconcile with with each other because you're going to need each other. And now here's just the final challenge. Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys to come forward. There is no shame in needing help. There's no shame in not being able to do things by yourself. You need, I need, we need a fellowship. This is why Christ gave us the church so that we don't have to do it by ourselves. Just embrace the awkwardness. Get help. And then get more help if you need it. But that help will not happen if we allow things to come between us. If we allow there to be sin and grudges and vindictiveness, we're not going to find love and support and the kind of fellowship that we're hungry for. We must forgive. And we must do everything we can do 
to work at reconciliation, and we're going to just have to embrace the awkwardness that comes with all of that so that together we can pull through. Some of you are going to get to practice this in just a few minutes. You're going to go back out into that lobby with people from this fellowship you don't know. Or or you're going to be out there, you know them a little bit, but you don't remember their names. Is that awkward? Is that embarrassing? Well, yes, it is. It doesn't have to be. Let that go. It's okay to be awkward. Just introduce yourself again. We're going to be gracious with each other. We're brothers and sisters. We just need a little bit more help. We will embrace the awkwardness. And I think in all of that, as we continue to love each other, we're going to see God. We're going to see God. Can you pray with me? Lord, thank you for showing us the way. Lord, thank you for giving us a roadmap toward reconciliation where we know that we need to forgive and we know that we need to offer ourselves even in the midst of the awkwardness. Lord, we can't control anyone else, but we know that you are in control of all things. So Lord, we just ask you to help us do what we can do. And Lord, I ask you to help us as a whole church to respond to each other in love and grace to pursue each other the way you have pursued us. Lord, help us. We need your help. Holy Spirit, come. Quicken us and help us to rise above our awkwardness and our embarrassment and our shame. But help us to live in the freedom and victory and glory of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Church, would you you stand and sing our closing song along with us? Today, we're going to sing Shout to the North. Rise up, church, even with your broken wings. Let's sing and praise the Lord. (laughs) 